chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. As Mark read in scripture reading today, we looked at he looked at the passage in Luke 19 or 9 rather. Look over there for a second. Make your way to Luke. We start today a new adventure as we begin the book of Luke. The book of Luke is uh, obviously going to be a long journey. It's going to take us a long time to get through it. Uh, it is filled with the glories of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as we get into it today, we're going to have to do somewhat of an overview and look at key themes. So it's not going to be the typical message. You will need your notes and go along. There's lots to fill in. Uh, but these are this would be a good overview for you. I would suggest to you if you have children or even uh, roommates, it might be good to kind of look over the basics of the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. Uh, These are some of the key themes and uh, key purposes and and concepts throughout this book. So today's message is more focused on uh, overview material uh, so that it's a necessary thing for us to get a good glimpse of the big picture. In Luke 9, though, Jesus says these words, some startling words, after, after Peter had said properly that you are the Christ of God, he begins to speak of how he's going to die. Notice in verse 22, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And in Luke 20 or 9.23, He begins to tell them of what is required to be one of his disciples. He says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is it a profit if a man gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. It's so important for us to get this scripture in mind and think on this passage. He's calling to a high standard of commitment. He is basically saying, look, I must be above all. I must be first place over everything. You must follow me above all other things. I must be first. And so as I read through this and as you think on that, you should be challenged. Is Christ first? Is he Lord in your life? Is he what it's all about, your life? And if you are like me, you would struggle with that at times. You may say, oh, but why do I do what I do sometimes? Why do I think what I think sometimes? You may struggle with those things. The book of Luke is written to help us understand better who Christ is. For as we know who he is better, as we understand his character and his work, following him to death, will not be a problem. This is why we're studying the book of Luke. I want you to understand the glory of our Savior. I want this church to be all about Christ 
I want you to know how beautiful and how wonderful and how powerful and how sovereign He is. So we study this book, book so you will know Him and then you will follow Him. I would suggest it would be a great book for all of us to study, even at home, and be meditating on these things. I would challenge you in the next couple months to read all the way through the book of Luke and Acts. Put Luke and Acts together and see what God has done. All right, so to give you a little background, take your, go back to Luke chapter 1, and let's walk through your notes. You might want to fill some of these things in. There, uh, there's bulletins in the back if you didn't get notes. And you can walk along with us. The background of the book. First, I want you to notice it's a two-volume set. It's a two-volume set. In Luke 1, 1 to 4, it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write out for you in consecutive order, most ex- excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now turn over real quickly to Acts chapter 1. That's the introduction to the book of Luke. Notice the introduction to the book of Acts. The same writer. In verses 1 and 2 it says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So you have the same man mentioned, the reader, and it is the same author. We will talk about who the author is next. But I want you to understand something. This, these two books come together. It is very important. This is the most complete um, uh, history of the New Testament in the entire Bible. Luke and Acts gives you a beautiful picture. It covers from 6 B.C. all the way to 60 A.D. roughly. It covers all of that time. It is very important that you study this and understand it. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that the writing here is a foundational for understanding the rest of the Bible and especially the epistles. Because as we go through these two books, there are foundational issues that will be drawn on for all the other epistles. When you read a letter from Paul, understanding what it means and understanding its context, you must have Luke and Acts in the back of your mind. To understand Romans, to understand Colossians, all of this, all of the background is found in Luke and Acts. So Luke and Acts would be tremendously important books for us to have in our mind. Notice second, the author. The author is Luke. You say, well, that's because at the top here it says the gospel according to Luke, right? Well, that's not in the text. That's not in the original letter. So how do we know it's Luke? Well, the answer to that is internally within the Bible and externally from church tradition It is overwhelming that Luke wrote this book. That Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. 
just to give you a little background on Luke, just a little bit, Colossians 4.14 says this about Luke. He is called by Paul the beloved physician. That's why we call him Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke. Notice in your Bibles, though, turn over to Acts with me. Through Luke 1, Luke does not mention himself or allude to himself at all. It takes all the way till Acts chapter 16, verse 16, where he begins to speak of himself. He briefly speaks of himself at the beginning of both books, but then in Luke in, in Acts 16, he is introduced to us, but only with the first person plural. Notice in Luke 16.10, it says, this is in the middle of the second missionary journey of Paul. Look at 16.10 of Acts. When he had seen the vision, that is Paul, immediately we. See that? It's almost, it's almost you would slide right over it and not even notice it if you're reading through the book of Acts. We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. They say, that's the first time the word we and us is used? Yep, right there. Now, I find it interesting to me. We see a level of humility in the writer here. He's, it's, he is keeping himself out of it. It's all about Jesus, even in his writing. It's all about recording the things that happen. And yet all he does is mentions himself here, we. And he mentions himself a couple more times in chapter 16. Matter of fact, in 1616 it says, And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her master much profit by fortune telling. And then guess what? He goes away again. We is not mentioned again. So the, Luke is there for a brief period, and it appears that he has left in Philippi, in this area. He's not brought back up again until Acts chapter 20. Look over there. He doesn't mention himself again until Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, verse 5, it says, But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us in Troas. In other words, this is the third missionary journey, and they're in Troas waiting on Luke to arrive. And Luke arrives, and he's back with the third missionary party. And from that point on, he is intermingled again all the way to Jerusalem in Acts 21. Look at 21.18. Paul goes to Jerusalem, remember, to bring the offering as we talked about in Romans. And in the process, he wants to go and pray. It gets him in trouble, but Luke is there. Look at 21.18. It says, And the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So you have Luke is hanging out with the Apostle Paul for a long, long period of time. As a matter of fact, we know and we can note that at one point, Paul is arrested. We know this throughout the rest of the book of Acts and is thrown in prison. And in the point that he's in prison, notice over at verse 24, or, or chapter 24, verse 24, Paul is thrown in prison here. 
or he's kept in prison. But some days later, Felix arrived his, with his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in, Je- in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away from for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul imprisoned. So Paul's in prison for roughly two years. Who's with him? Turn with me to Colossians for a second. Colossians is one of the prison epistles. Luke is with him. Colossians chapter 4. In Colossians chapter 4, we see that when Paul writes this letter, this prison epistle to to the Colossians, look at 4.14. Luke the beloved physician sends you his greetings and also Demas. So who is with Paul while he's in prison? Answer, Luke. Why is this important, Mike? Why are you telling me all this stuff? And here's the answer. The book of Luke was written most likely while Paul was in prison in this area from 58 to 60. Paul is behind the writing of Luke. Luke was not an apostle. Luke was a Gentile. But the authority of the book comes not only from God, but also the authority of the apostle Paul that is helping him write this book and working with him. He is, in a sense, the guy behind the scenes. Luke's doing all this work, gathering the information, and Paul's there all the time interacting with him and all the events. That's why as you read through the book of Acts, you see that the Apostle Paul, a lot of the events where Luke's not present are detailed with great detail because you have Paul and Luke working together to write this. All right? So it's important to note that the author of this book is the Dr. Luke, a Gentile believer who writes with the authority of God and the authority of the Apostle Paul. This is very much, and you can turn back to Luke chapter 1, this is very much like the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is written with Peter being the one who most likely helped John Mark write this, or Mark write this. I think it's important for us to note something here, though. By way of application, listen to me closely. We did this debate on um, we did this debate on uh, Thursday night at Grace on Campus, and what the Mormons did because they wanted to elevate the Book of Moroni to a high level, what they did was attack the authority of the Scriptures, and they basically said there are errors all through the Bible. They began to say this. I'm thinking to myself, then what do you believe? How do you believe anything? How do you stand on anything? And their answer was, because I feel it's right. (laughs) That's ultimately their answer. 
My heart tells me that I'm following the right God. You know what, folks? That's a scary thing. In light of Romans 3.10 that says, None understand, none seeks after God. The authority of Scripture is solid. It's clear. It can be stood on. And though Luke shows in Luke chapter 1 that he spent much time spending, looking, figuring out, trying to figure out all the details, investigating, there is no error in it either. But because in the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, as Luke was working, God worked through Luke to write a perfect account of the history of the beginning of Christianity. New Testament history is perfectly recorded because of the Holy Spirit. We know this from several other passages in the Bible, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. God breathes. So... As you look at this, you may be tempted and say, okay, so he did some investigation. What if he got something wrong? He didn't. (laughs) Why? Because the Holy Spirit was working. It's perfect. We see this beautiful picture, though, here. And it's a good reminder for us all to remember this. God is sovereign, and he works through man's responsibility. (laughs) In an amazing way. We have these guys, this guy Luke, diligently working to investigate and put together this book and diligently write all these things, yet at the same time God is sovereignly working. This is a call for all of us to be diligent in our own study, right? In a sense, just because God is sovereign doesn't mean we sit back and we do nothing. It's a beautiful picture here in Luke's life. He is diligent. To investigate. Are you disciplined? Are you like me? You fight discipline. (laughs) I struggle with discipline. But discipline is required. Are you a disciplined person? Are you up early? Is your prayer time consistent? Are you seeking the Lord fervently? Are you studying the scriptures? Are you like the Bereans? who were diligent to study the Scriptures to see if these things are true. I would suggest to you, don't just rely on me. Please, do you hear me? I tell you these things. I challenge you. Are you being diligent to study these things to see if it's true? Don't just sit back. That's not what this church should be about, right? Are you faithful stewards of the Word? That's what I want our Bible, our church to be about. That's why the second word in our second name in our title is Grace Bible Church. We want you to be Bible scholars, Bible students. Study the scriptures. You have a responsibility. Luke gives us a beautiful example. God is sovereign, yes, but Luke was diligent. So he was a diligent author. Third, notice the reader. The reader is Theophilus. He's mentioned in both Luke 1, 3 and Acts 1, 1. Who is this guy? There's not a lot of information on him. Actually, his name means beloved of God, but I don't think we can even take too much from that. Um, It does appear that he was a believer. Notice at the end of verse 4 it says, about the things you have been taught. So it appears that he has some understanding, at least, of the gospel. 
I would suggest that this book is not so much a evangelistic gospel as much as a gospel to further inform the believer. To help the believer understand better who Christ is. And a call to faithfulness in light of this truth. That's what Theophilus is all about. Most likely, his title, it could be Most Excellent Theophilus, points to his status, maybe as a government official, or a city official, or a town official, maybe well off. But to be honest, we don't know a whole bunch about him. I think it's interesting, though, that this is very much like 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. A book is written from Luke to one man. But the intent of the book is not for one man only. It actually would be a book. These two books would be circulated so that all the church could understand the glories of Christ with a special emphasis on the Gentiles that were coming to Christ through Paul's mission work. It uses more of a classical Greek. It's very difficult, so I'll be calling on Stephen regularly. Where is he? Where are you at? There he is, back there. Steve, I'll be calling on Stephen more often to help me out with some of these Greek uh, ideas. This is very hard. As a matter of fact, I struggle with it all week long, so y'all can pray for me. But it points to the Gentile reader more. It's very important that you understand that this is applicable to us. This is a book that we should be reading. Oh, parents, please read this book to your children. It will be a great book for them to go through. Luke 1.4 says, notice the purpose, fourth, the purpose. So that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. The exact truth. This literally means that you will have certainty about the truth of the gospel. That you will have certainty about it. This is a two-volume set that calls Theophilus for faithfulness to the Savior. Faithfulness to the Lord. Know for certain who He is. Now follow Him. Be sure. You're going to be given a glimpse, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lord Jesus Christ as we go through this in all of His glory. And hopefully this will provoke all of us to faithful service of Him. Are you a faithful follower of Christ? Are you? Is it just Sunday morning or is it all week long? Is it all the time in your family? Does your, do the people that are around you look at you and say, this person knows the Lord Jesus Christ? They submit to Him. They honor Him. That's what this book's about. This book is about showing you who we follow. Understand who He is. Understand His glory and what He has done so that you will follow faithfully. Again, the date of the book, 5th, is between 58 and 63, sometime in that range. Like mentioned in Acts 24, 24 to 27, Paul's in prison, most likely Luke is doing research while Paul is in prison, talking to James and the other apostles, talking to these eyewitnesses, and also going down, and maybe even interviewing, we don't know for sure, Mary. Might have interviewed Mary to get some of these earlier uh, issues. We don't know for sure. The reality is, is that it's a co-authored, in a sense, by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, and Luke. Let's keep looking. The major themes. Number six, the major th- themes. 
I want to look at a couple of these real quickly. Let's zip through these. Wow, time's going well. There are 13 main themes I want to briefly look at. The first main theme is the, th- the sovereign plan of God. The sovereign plan of God. It's seen throughout Luke and Acts. Let's start. Let me give you an example. You see it in the way that we're in special words. You know, in Revelation, I talked to you about how God's sovereignty is seen in one particular verb. What is that verb? You can tell me. Kind of, it was given. It was given. Right. By being given, it shows that God is sovereign. Right? Here we have another word that's emphasized throughout Luke and Acts. It's day, or uh, transliteration is D-E-I, and it means these things must take place. Must take place. Look at Luke 2.49. This word's repeated numerous times throughout Luke and Acts. 2.49. Chapter 2, verse 49. We get a little hint of it in this verse. And you don't always see it translated the same way because of tense. It's a verb. And the way it fits in, it's not always as clear. But you'll see it in this verse. And he said to them, (coughs) Jesus is speaking, when he was very young, remember 12, and they went up to the feast. Why is it that you were looking for me, talking to his parents, his earthly parents, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? I must be here. I had to be. It was God's plan and command and direction for him to be here. The same concept. Look over at 442. It's mentioned all the way through. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. We see this whole concept of God is ordained and working in the Son of God to accomplish his will. It's very important. There's also another concept that points to God's sovereign work in this. It's, look back at 120. It's this word fulfilled. Having been fulfilled. Scripture or the plan of God being fulfilled. It's repeated numerous times throughout these books. In 120 it says this, And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak. Remember he's talking to Zacharias. Unable to speak until the day when these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. In other words, these events will happen. Can you tell me, just by chance, can you tell me what's going to happen in 10 months? Can you? Can you tell me in 10 months what's going to happen? Here, the angel speaking to Zacharias says, these things will happen. It must happen. That's talking about events that are sure to happen before they happen. So what does that mean? God's in control. God's in control. If he tells what's going to happen 10 months before it happens, then he's in control. And this is mentioned over and over and over throughout the scriptures and throughout Luke and Acts. The fulfillment of God's plan. Look at 421, another example. 
I know that y'all bear with me here. I know today is a very meaty, weighty, lots of information. Part of it, folks, part of it. To get the overview, you've got to have this so that you're looking and reading the Scriptures with a proper context. Look at (coughs) verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is a scripture that he quotes in 18 from Isaiah 61. This is when he's talking to his family and his friends, his neighborhood. And what do they do? They get angry and they try to throw him off a cliff. But he says, in effect, this is fulfilling scripture. And if scripture said something 600 years before, and he says it had to happen to fulfill it, then he's telling what? That God had it ordained and in control from 600 years before. When we see that God, when Christ fulfills something that's spoken of him before, what does that say about God? He knows the the end from the beginning. We're going to see it all the way through, Luke. He is Lord. Folks, I want you to listen to me closely. The sovereignty of God is closely linked to his lordship. And his lordship is what dictates to us that we must obey him. He's in control, so we must obey him. The more we understand his lordship, when he says, pick up your cross and follow me, be a disciple, a follower, you must understand his lordship. It's so important. He's in control. Second theme, and we'll zip through these faster. The Savior and his work of saving people is seen here. Look back, look back at Luke 19.9. Luke 19.9. We have this concept of him delivering people from their sin and from their bondage and from their circumstances. Zacchaeus, y'all know, you know the story of Zacchaeus, right? Jesus says these beautiful words and, and this concept of his saving us is mentioned all the way through Luke. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. So we have over and over and over this idea of his Savior status and his work of saving saving people. Look at Luke 23 from the cross. These are profound words. Look at these words. In Luke 23, hang in there, folks. Look at verse 35. Y'all know he's on the cross, right? In Luke 23, 33. And Jesus was saying in 34, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And then look at these profound words. Look at these profound words in verse 35. The people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Now this is a very interesting phrase. The irony of it is, is that the reason why he would not save himself was so that he could save others. (laughs) They didn't get it. Everything they thought the opposite was true. 
He was so in control that He would not come down off the cross so that He could save others. And they had it all backwards. The reason why He was on the cross was to save others. Because He is the Savior. He is the Lord and He is the Savior. We see also the power of God throughout Luke. Look back at Luke 1.35. Luke 1.35, the power of God all the way through. Luke and Acts, you're going to see the power of God. The dunamis of God. In Luke 1.35 it says, The angel said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. What is this? This is an allusion to the power of God on display in the Incarnation. The Holy Spirit demonstrates an amazing power here by putting, in some amazing way, the second member of the Trinity within a woman that's a virgin. It happened. It was a powerful display of God. In Luke twenty-two sixty-nine, turn over there. I'm making y'all turn a little bit today, but it's good for you. Luke twenty-two sixty-nine to keep you awake. Luke twenty-two sixty-nine, and Jesus is speaking before the Sanhedrin. He says, "But from now on, the Son of God, the Son of Man, will be seated at the right hand of the power of God." Speaking of when he's going to die and ascend and be in that seat of authority. He has the power of God. He's at the right hand of God. The seat of authority. The same one that we're reading about. Why should I serve him? Because he's seated in the seat of authority at the power of God. He is the one. Jesus the Lord. Turn back to 11. 11, 11. Jesus the Lord, number four. <coughs> Jesus the Lord. 11, 11, 11, 1 rather. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Hey, let, Brenda and I were talking about this a little bit last night. We say the name Lord regularly in our prayers, don't we? Lord, Lord, will you do this? Lord, will you do that? What does the word Lord mean? We sometimes think, okay, Lord, do this, or Lord, will you do this? What are we saying when we say Lord? What is he saying when he says Lord here? Master, one in control, the one over all. I'm the slave, you're the Lord. Do we think that way when we pray, Lord? Or do we think, Lord, give me something. <laughs> we often take the word Lord and turn it upside down, don't we? We go to him and say, we, he becomes flippant, doesn't it? That phrase, Lord, just becomes so flippant. But it means what? Master. Which means if you say it, you must come with what? A humble heart. A humble heart. Teach us to pray implies what? I need your help. I'm not sure. Help me. Dependence. I need you. 
Is He your Lord? Are you dependent upon Him? Or do you just call Him Lord to get something? Oh, He's Master. All the way through Luke 9, all the way through the whole entire book of Luke and Acts, fifth, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is mentioned. Jesus refers to His death to come. Remember in Luke 9.22. In Luke 9.22 He referenced that He was going to be rejected and be killed and be raised on the third day. He mentions it again in 31. Who appearing in glory were speaking of His departure which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In 44 He mentions it again. Let these words sink into your ears for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's talking about his death before it happens. Again, showing what? He knows all things. And showing also and pointing to Jesus is also the dead, resurrected, living Savior. Very important for us to remember. The Holy Spirit is mentioned all the way through. We're not going to go through all of them, but the Holy Spirit is mentioned all the way through Luke and Acts. How many of you want to know about the Holy Spirit and know about His role in our lives? We hear often evangelical churches, especially really conservative churches, avoid talking about the Holy Spirit because they're afraid of Him. He is the third person of the Godhead. And Luke references the Holy Spirit numerous times through both books. We're going to get to see what the Holy Spirit, who He is, what He's all about. He is a person of God, and we're going to understand Him a lot better. Also, it references the Gentiles, which all but one of us, no, Daniel's not here, all of us, I think, are Gentiles. So it's a very applicable book to all of us. It also talks about the outcasts of society. Oh, this is good news. It shows Jesus as the one who comes to the poor numerous times in Luke. The tax gatherers, the women... In that society, the women were outcasts, were second rate. But yet, women are mentioned more in the book of Luke and Acts than anywhere else in all the Bible. It shows what? Jesus is about all people. It's a wonderful truth. He's a compassionate, gentle, loving Savior that looks to the outcasts wherever they are. And ninth, we see... The required response in the message. Look over at Luke 3. John introduces it first. John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 3, we get a picture of what's required in light of the Messiah to come, the Lord to come. And what is required for us, ladies and gentlemen? Today, what is required of us in light of this message? And the answer is repentance. Genuine faith. Repentance. Look, in 3.3 it says, And he came into the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Then in 3.8, Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham, or do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children of Abraham. In other words, look. Does your life resemble fruit of change? Fruit of a heart change? Fruit 
of genuine faith. We're going to see it throughout the book of Luke and Acts. What is genuine faith? Is it praying a prayer? Is it? No. Listen, praying a prayer can be a reflection of genuine faith. It can show an out demonstration of, of, of genuine faith. But ultimately, fruit of repentance continues on in the person's life. Change. A submission to the Lordship of Christ. We're going to see this throughout the book of Luke. That's why he says, unless you're willing to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, you're not my disciple. So genuine repentance must be a part of our life. Daily, ongoing. This is what's the response to this message. We're going to see it over and over. And I'm telling you, I'm warning you, that there are going to probably be visitors that come along during these days as we go through, and they're not going to like the message. Maybe some of you in here might not like the message. You might say, I don't want to hear about obeying Jesus anymore. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, but that's what Luke and Acts is all about. <laughs> Obedience. It's required. And it shows a heart that's been changed. You're not saved by what you do. But you are saved to do good works. Fact. Faith without works is dead, as James would say. Luke is very clear on this subject. It's going to be over and over and over. So we're, our response must be repentance. Tenth. Prayer is all the way through it. Prayer shows a heart of dependence. We see it in Jesus' life. Look, life. Look at Luke 5. Man, this is so convicting looking at Jesus' life. Look at Luke 5. Look at Luke 5, 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Man, just getting away so he could pray. Look at 6, 12. And this is ongoing all the time. Look at this one. Before choosing the twelve, look at what the Lord did. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Over and over, we're going to see this glimpse of what prayer is about. Oh, this is convicting. What is your life like? This is the Lord Jesus. He's perfect. And yet, what does he do? He prays to the Father. He entreats the Father. If He's perfect and He never sins, and yet He has to depend on the Father and commune with the Father, how much more should we? How much more should we? Constantly be seeking the Lord. I was challenged by this this week. Heard of another church that's struggling. Struggling with division and disunity in their church. Godly men on both sides of the disunity factor don't get it. I don't understand it. And the answer to it is prayer. Oh God, we need you. We need you in this church, don't we? You need him in your life. I heard of another guy that was a seminary professor that fell away and went off with another person. In a godly 
place, a place of learning about Scripture, fell away completely. What does that say? Again, we need you. Dependence. Are you dependent upon the Lord? Your prayer life will show it. Did you hear me? If you're dependent upon the Lord, then you're in prayer regularly. If you're not dependent on the Lord, you're not in prayer regularly. I need you every hour, all the time. That's why we need to know this Lord, right? So we'll seek Him. Joy is another theme all the way through the book. Great rejoicing, exaltation, joy, greatly rejoicing. Cheer, glad, be joyful. Good news. I can't wait to get into that. Sometimes people think, well, the lordship of Christ causes hardship. No, it causes joy. (laughs) It's a privilege to serve the king. There's great joy in obeying him. If you're miserable, it's probably because of sin. (laughs) Listen, joy is found in serving the Savior. We're going to see it all the way through the book. The Word is over and over. The emphasis on the Word of God. 1.14, look. 1.14. Or 1.2, rather. Back in the introduction, he says, Just as they were handed down to those... To us, by those whom from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Servants of the word. Okay, who is the eyewitnesses? Most likely this is a reference to the apostles. The eyewitnesses of Christ and what he had done. And But notice it's tied to something. Someone who saw Jesus and knew Jesus then became what? A servant of the word. A servant of the word. Oh, this is a beautiful picture. Are you a servant of the Word? Are you all about the Word? Are you all about proclaiming the Word? Are you all all about living the Word? Is the Word of God all about your life? As you know the one that was eyewitnessed and Luke records, you should become another servant of the Word. It should be our lives. We should be all about the Word of God. More than your job, more than your family, more than your careers, more than your riches. The Word should be primary in your life. Is it? Is the Word of God primary in your life? It must be. Luke and Acts talks all about it. The Word, the power of the Word. And then baptism is also mentioned. We see Jesus get baptized in Luke chapter 3. We see in this book, folks, that God is in sovereign control. We see Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. We see the power of God is available through Jesus Christ to us. We see the Holy Spirit is living and active in His own. We see the Lord is all about the outcast, the broken, the hurting, the needy. Praise the Lord. Isn't that good news for us that are needy? The required response is repentant faith. We see the prayer is an integral part of our, the believer's life. We see that joy is found in Christ Jesus and knowing Him. And that the Word is authoritative and sufficient. and must be our primary thought. All of this we see in the books of Luke and Acts. Are you ready? 
Are you ready to study? Are you ready to learn about Christ? That's what we're going to do over the years ahead. We're going to see the glories of our Savior. And we're going to be built up in our faith and we're going to walk obediently, trusting in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace and Your goodness to us. We need You, Christ. We know that You are glorious. We have been taught the truths about Jesus. But Lord, we need to know You better. Oh, Father, help us to study this book. Help us, Lord, to not just be hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. Oh, God, please help all of us to fall in love with Christ again. To love Him more. To be more committed. To rejoice in Him always. Show us Your glory, Lord, as we study this book. For we are needy people, prone to wander, prone to stray. We need you every hour. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.